I'm Dean Wilson, this is Good Life. Though I have a face for radio, here we are. Going all over the world on Facebook, Instagram, and locally here on TV Santa Barbara. We're grateful to have you with us. Um, my guest today is John Daly, a good friend. And this is gonna be a great show because John has a great story. So wherever you are, uh, I, I hope you'll stop and hang out with us for a little while and hear John's story because I think it'll be an encouragement and an inspiration. So John, welcome. Thank you, Dean. Great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, John, I wanted to start with your story. We were talking the other day. John has had a great career, and I'll give you a little bit of his background maybe before we start. John's had a great career. He uh, planned events for Fortune 100 companies all over the globe. He has a great family. He has a great marriage, um, and he has a great story, most of all. Um, so maybe you could just start us with what we were talking about the other day. You were born in upstate New York, mm -hmm. and then you ended up moving to Miami. Talk us through kind of that period of, of your life. Fortunately, I, I was born into a, a wealthy family, and uh, we, we were doing very, very well. My mom was a uh, president of a construction company, and the construction company was booming. Uh, during my younger years. Everything went along fine until I turned about nine years old and everything went south then. Uh, I don't know what exactly was happening in 1956. I wasn't, you know, really a part of that, but apparently there was some sort of a recession or something. And my mom uh, went bankrupt and we ended up leaving our home in upstate New York, which was a lovely three-story home and uh, with all the accoutrements that anybody could possibly want. We dressed for dinner at night and it was, it was a sweet life, if you will. When my mom went bankrupt, we ended up moving to Miami, Florida and we moved into the black ghetto and uh, in 1956, 57, that wasn't a very good place to be. Yeah. Uh, it was really just before the, the real big explosion of everything. And another thing was I was not used to that. In upstate New York, we had no, there was no prejudice whatsoever. And in the South, there was a great deal of prejudice. There were still drinking fountains that had colored and white on them, uh, which is hard to believe today. Yeah. And anyway, we moved into this neighborhood and of course we weren't very welcome because we were white. And so we, when we would get home, we closed the draperies and stayed in the house and kept to ourselves. We were so broke that, uh, as I told you the other day, that uh, we took our money and pooled our money. So my mom got a job, yeah. first of all, uh, selling wallpaper and paint. And uh, we pooled our money together and bought a bicycle for my brother. So my brother could take my mom to and from work because we didn't even have enough money for bus fare. Anyway, we are living in this little tiny apartment and um, we worked very, very hard. I, I sold newspapers in the afternoon on, in the traffic. It used to be that kids sold newspapers in traffic. Well, I was one of those kids and uh, the newspapers were five cents a piece and I got a, to keep a penny a piece. So I really hustled those newspapers up and down the traffic line. And then after I got done doing that, I was to be at home and the house had better be clean and spotless. And I had dinner ready by the time my mom came home from work on my brother's crossbar of his bicycle. So your brother would drive her to work on a bike and she was on the handlebars. And she was on the handlebars, right. And so that's, but that was the way it was. And it was, it wasn't any poor me's. It was just the way it was. It was kind of a new adventure. And I remember when I wanted to, 
have some things for school or whatever that were not necessary. It was the rage then to have pink paper, pink paper, and I had to have pink paper. And my mom said, we can't afford it. You know, you have to use the regular white paper. And okay, I'll use the regular white paper. And, but my mom sat us down and she said to both my brother and I, I don't want this situation that we are in right now to define who you will be for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Because this is only a place that we're in today and we have to take it for what it is today. We worked, my brother worked, my mom worked, we pooled our money, and we soon moved out of the area that we were in. Back then, Dean, it was called Colored Town. And we moved out of Colored Town to go into a white area of the city. Albeit, it was not the best part of the city, but we moved into it. Yeah. And the three of us worked together as a team. and. We ended up staying in, in Miami for five years. And five years later, my mother's brother, my uncle, lived here in uh, Southern California in the San Fernando Valley. And he had opened up an air conditioning business and they needed air conditioning badly in the San Fernando Valley <laughs> in the 60s. In, in the 60s. Right. And so he invited us to move out here and come to work with him. And my mom had remarried. She ended up remarrying and um, right away gave me a new baby sister, which was wonderful. I love that, having a, a sister. And we moved to uh, Southern California and we moved to uh, the San Fernando Valley and lived on Tampa Avenue, which is a main thoroughfare now, but we were living there when it was a dirt road. Oh, wow. So not the whole thing, but where we lived was a dirt road. And uh, we had a corral right next to us and, and we, had, we had bought a home. We actually bought a home. Uh, and it was, it was wonderful. And real quick, where's your dad in all of this? My my mom and dad uh, divorced when I was 18 months old. Okay. And so my dad wasn't around. I, I had a relationship with my dad, but I saw him every once in a while okay. on, on a weekend or something like that. I would see him. I, I decided during that conversation that I was never, ever going to be poor again. And I was never ever going to let my mother be poor again or myself and that I was going to work. And I believe that was my inspiration to have the work ethic that I ended up having, which yeah. is a workaholic completely. And I know you know exactly what right. that means. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you know a little bit about it. I, I worked very, very hard. Uh, all through school. School was not easy for me. I am not a person that learns well from textbooks. And so therefore, I, I, I did not go to college. I am a high school graduate. And I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a high school graduate and that I was able to uh, turn my life in such a direction that I had a successful successful monetarily and successful life otherwise. Yeah, and so you decided, it sounds to me like you were gonna do whatever it takes. That's one of the things that came out of those early years that were tough. Absolutely. And you developed a togetherness with your family. Very, very together. tight unit. Yeah. Very tight That's unit. That's interesting. Yes. Um, let's fast forward to November 19th, 1994. Hmm. Uh, you're probably familiar with that date. I'm very familiar with that date. <laughs> so uh, you, you've been open with me and, and ins inspirational and with me in your discussion about your journey in recovery. Mm -hmm. And take us back to November 19th, 1994 and talk about what happened. Well, I, I 
realized when I was 19 years old that I, um, I come from a pedigreed family of alcoholics. We are full-blown pedigree. Yeah, we, we uh, all are, um, I have five brothers, there's five of us, brothers and sisters, and four of us are in recovery. And so, and my mom was an alcoholic and my, my father was an alcoholic as well. And so, and, and my grandparents before me and aunts and uncles and so on and so forth, it was all, and, but it, it was real hush-hush, Dean. It wasn't talked about. Um, it, when I was growing up, it just wasn't, it wasn't something that like today where it's so open. Right. And, um, I, I had been sober for about four years prior to, uh, September the 19th, November 19th, November 19th excuse me. I'm, I'm <laughs> backing up on to today. Um, I was had been sober and my best friend passed away and uh, he had a horrible death he had a disease that ate his brain and he every day became a little bit younger and to the point that by the time he had his demise he could only talk baby talk and I, I you watched it and I watched it and I was with him constantly. Wow. And it happened in a very short period of time from September through November. And he passed on the 19th. And he passed on the 19th. He had his stroke on the 12th of September and passed on the 19th of November. But at any rate, um, on, on the 19th, I, I started drinking again and I started drinking very, very destructively. And um, fortunately, I was never a mean drunk. I wasn't uh, nasty. I didn't um, spend the money that I shouldn't have spent and so on and so forth. And um, I, I think I said that I realized that I drank too much when I was 19 years old, but I really believed in my heart that I may have a, I may drink too much, but I don't have a problem with alcohol because I never missed a day of work. I never drank before seven o'clock at night. Of course, once I started drinking at seven o'clock at night, I got trashed. Yeah. But up until then, um, I, I would not drink. So you're functioning. I was very functioning. Yeah. Yeah, and it was uh, a, a difficult thing to wrap my head around. Uh, I really believed at the time that as long as I was drinking out of crystal, this is the sick mind of an alcoholic. <laughs> wow. As long as I was drinking out of crystal and drinking the best booze you could buy, then I didn't have a problem. And so I continued drinking up until the night of the 19th of November. And I had some friends over. My wife had, had gone to Seattle because uh, it was Thanksgiving. And uh, Thanksgiving was coming up uh, the following Thursday. And so she had gone up to Seattle and I was at home alone. And so my uh, couple of buddies came over that were drinking buddies. And they, um, we, we got extremely drunk and I passed out at the dining room table. They ended up going out and when they came home, I was still there at the dining room table. And they put me to bed and they said, you know, you know, you gotta kinda cool it, John. You gotta take this down a notch. And so the next morning they left it at uh, eight o'clock in the morning and for the first time, I opened up a beer. I opened up a Heineken. In the morning. In the morning at eight o'clock. Breakfast I, of champions. Yeah, the breakfast of <laughs> champions. I never drank in the morning. Yeah. And I- Were you down? Oh, I was so depressed because I was, my friend Wit passed on the 19th. And so it was, 
because of that, that we, I had gotten so drunk the night before, feeling very sorry for myself that Wit had left and so on and so forth. And um, so I was, remember that I started drinking early in the morning and was drinking beer, but still getting myself pretty trashed. And I had found, I had recently filled a prescription of uh, Valium. I was on, I would take Valium on occasion. I didn't abuse drugs, but I would take Valium occasionally for being, for nervous, for being nervous. And so I um, decided that I couldn't stop drinking and I was ruining my life and I hated myself and I was angry at wit, and I was angry with everyone uh, that I was poor me. I spent four years on the pity pot, as they call it. And so I was decided that I was going to take that prescription of Valium and take them all at once and some beer and figured I'm, gonna, I'm home alone. Nobody's gonna discover me for at least four or five days which is good, and wow. uh, that's, that's where I was thinking, I'll just go to sleep and that'll be the end of that. I don't have to worry about quitting drinking. Because I tried, I tried many times to quit drinking. And you were it, gonna take the whole bottle of value. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And if I'd had two, I would have taken two. But I was extremely serious about it. Dean, I tore the house apart looking for that Valium. It was not in the medicine cabinet where it belonged, and I don't know where it went, but it was not available any place. I kept looking, and I now have a picture of Wit that I'm screaming at my best friend saying, you left me, and I'm here alone, and I can't stop drinking, and I'm ruining my life, and I'm ruining my family's life, and this is all, bad and all of a sudden I uh, I don't know what happened I don't know what happened but I know that I felt arms go around me mm. and I I believe as I told you that it was my friend Wit, and he was telling me to get myself together and I called another friend that lived here in Santa Barbara and said I need help and I need to go into treatment. So I ended up going into treatment that day. I went to an incredible uh, recovery house down in Los Angeles that really straightened me out and helped me get sober. My sober date is November the 21st because that was the last day I took a drink was November the 20th. And it happens to be the day that my, we buried my best friend, Wit was the 21st of November. And what was the saddest day of my life ended up turning into what I consider to be one of the happiest days of my life now. Wow. Because I'm celebrating sobriety. And this year I celebrate 25 years of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. When you got home from rehab, the Valium was in the medicine cabinet, wasn't it? Yes, when I got home from rehab, um, we had a full bar in our house. And I had asked my wife to clear out the bar. And so there was nothing in the bar. And um, that was a good thing. I didn't want to have to be looking at alcohol 30 days later. And so we got home and I went to the bathroom and I opened up the medicine cabinet and there was the Valium right where I had left it. Maybe God moved the Valium. Maybe God moved the Valium. Somebody moved that Valium because I, or somebody moved my mind so I right. couldn't find it. Right. Wow. And I, can, I consider it a, a blessing, obviously. Yeah. John, you have gone from, you described that self-hatred and we, we, we've been to lunch a few times. We've only been friends about, what, six months? About that, I yes. think it's going very well. Yeah. Our friendship. I, I would say so. Yes. 
we had lunch one day and you were telling me I like myself and I think that's a really healthy thing and that, today's not about my story but I've had a similar experience where going from really understanding that I didn't really like myself to really having it be true that I do like myself mm-hmm. talk about that it sounds a little weird to say I like myself but I think we need to say it more I think more people I, need to like themselves. I had another epiphany. Okay. I was working in Paris. Um, I was working on the World Cup in Paris. And I uh, had some time off and I went to the opera. Now, whether or not this has anything to do with the epiphany or not, I, I think it does. And I went to see uh, Minon Lescaut. And at the second, uh, the, the overture to the second act, I, they played this incredible music. And I sat there and I thought to myself, I had been sober for now a little over a year and still not liking myself, even though I was sober. But I sat there and I thought, here you are in Paris, you're at the Paris Opera House, you're being paid to be here, and you've done pretty well for yourself as far as business is concerned, and you've done pretty well for yourself as far as your family is concerned by getting sober. And you know what? You're not such a bad guy after all. And as this music is playing, I'm thinking all this, And I ended up sitting there crying my eyes out because I finally got to say, John Daly, I love you. (laughs) And I do. I love John Daly. I love it. I love John Daly, too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. I think that that's um, something that happens. In fact, I think I, I I read this today about about addiction. There's a USC professor who's also a theologian who's since passed. He's a friend of my dad. He was a friend of my dad's named Dallas Willard. And he talked he talked about addiction. He said allow he talked about being basically preoccupied with feelings, how you feel. Mm-hmm. And he said allowing oneself to be carried away by feeling leads to deadness of soul. Mm. And I think there's something about addiction that deadens the soul and there's something about freedom that brings the person to life i totally agree with you have you experienced that i yes yes i have and what would you say to somebody watching us right now on facebook live somewhere in south dakota who's got beer bottles all around him and feels like his life's over it's too bad he can't recover he's lost everything mm-hmm. and they're sitting there and all they can do is drink what do you say to them I would say that to to give up the drinking is a very difficult proposition it's very difficult however without a doubt it is the biggest gift I ever gave myself and that if you can stick with it, I happen to do it through AA. I'm not saying that that's the only way to do it, but there's, there's other ways that people go about doing it. But for me, AA has been an answer. Yeah. And what is it about AA and the 12 steps? How would you, some, somebody that's, let's, let's say somebody's out there right now who's never heard of mm-hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps. What is, what is it about the 12 steps that tends to have such power and, and enable people to get on a journey of freedom versus bondage? I think first off, before, before the 12 steps comes the meetings. And I know when I went to, started going to AA meetings, I found out that I wasn't the only person that was like me. 
I thought that I was unique and that nobody else felt that way and nobody else ever wanted to kill themselves. Nobody understood. Nobody understood and yeah. nobody got it. And finding other people that understand because they've been there. And, uh, you know, you would think that AA, the rooms of AA are really dismal, dark places. When you're on the outside, you think that if you've got a drinking problem, you really do. You think about a, you know, a dark, dingy church basement where a meeting goes on. But I have to tell you, I have more fun at AA meetings than you can imagine because everybody understands each other and what each other's problems are and their challenges and so on. They understand each other. Yeah. And to be able to say something back to you that talks about this is what you're feeling, it, you find out that you're, you, you're not the only one. You're not alone. And that makes a huge difference. Then the steps really have an awful lot about sort of cleaning up your life. That's basically what the steps are all about. And there's an authenticity in those rooms. There's, there's not, it's real. It's real. And it's okay to be broken. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I go to a men's meeting um, that I've gone to now for 24 and a half years uh, that meets every Saturday morning. And we've got people in there that lived in a dumpster all the way through people that have won several Academy Awards and everything in between. Very successful people, people that were down and out. And by the way, the people that were successful were equally as down and out as the people that were living in a dumpster in a different manner. Right. But they were. Yeah. There's, I don't know what, I forget the, all the steps and which one's which, but there's something about being powerless. Powerless um, over I'm, alcohol. I'm powerless, and so I'm turning to God or right. higher power. Right. As my higher power as I understand him. Yeah. That's the, a really big deal because a lot of people, Dean, are put off by AA thinking that it's a religious yeah. organization and they may not be of that persuasion. Yeah. It's not. It's the, your higher power can be this microphone. Yeah. yeah. And, and that whatever whatever you want your hired power to be that's what it can be yeah i speaking of dallas willard he he said one time in one of his books that i just read a couple months ago he talked about aa being maybe the closest thing to what the real church should be because of the, it's okay to be broken yes we are powerless yes we can acknowledge it and turn to god i i think that's really true I mean I think and I think sometimes the, the contrast can be between an, a, an AA meeting let's say where there's complete authenticity they're gonna lay it on the table here's who I am the good the bad and the indifferent mm -hmm. and maybe a religious setting where we're not allowed to do that I have to be buttoned up I have to be I can't tell you who I really am uh-huh because I'm afraid right I think we need more of the former. I think we need more of the spirit of, of an AA meeting that says, oh, you're broken? So am I. Yeah. And it's a given. It's a given, by the way, in AA meetings that what goes on in the rooms stays in the rooms. Mm -hmm. You do not talk about people's, people's problems and so on and so forth. Right. So one of the things I'm, uh, I'm interested in terms of your story and uh, is valleys in life. So that November 19th, that experience, you're 47 years old, I think at that time, you were ready to end it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's a valley. It's a deep valley. That's a deep valley. Yes. And, and you were saved and thank God and you're here and you've had this incredible impact ever since. I think it, what, what do you think about the idea that 
sometimes the most growth or learning can happen in the valley versus the mountaintop. Has oh, that been I, your experience? I, I totally agree. I mean, when you think about your life, Dean, when was the last time you learned something when you were on top of the world? Yeah. But then again, when was the last time you learned something when you were at the bottom, at the depths, or not, right. not even at the bottom, even at, at a low point, yeah. just a low point in your life? Yeah. They seem to, adversity seems to make us stronger. Yeah. And I, I think that's an awful lot when you say God only gives you as much as you can handle. I think that's really the truth because it gives it up to that point and then you are, you're able to handle it and you come out of it on the other side. And when you come out, it's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. And when you come out, you're a, you're a person who's learned about yourself. Mm -hmm. You've grown. You've withstood. You've overcome. Yes. At some level. Exactly. And you, you really can't overcome if you don't overcome anything. Exactly. <laughs> you can't become an overcomer if you don't <laughs> overcome anything. That's hey. profound. Yeah. For a first show. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. <laughs> that's a good one. Let's talk about your marriage and your family. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your marriage and I'm family. married to probably the most wonderful woman that walks the earth. In my estimation, she is, without a doubt, the most wonderful woman that walks the earth. We've been married for 37 years. We have five children and um, five grandchildren. Wow. And we are so... For lack of a better term, I'll say blessed with our life because every single day we fall more in love. And it's pretty awesome. It doesn't get much better. When you think you're right at the top with that, no, it just gets better. I love it. Yeah. How, pretty, how, now, you're, now let's say we're talking to a newlywed. Any encouragements to somebody who's at the beginning you're at 37 years somebody who's just starting out in marriage and what would you say to them a really big thing is people you hear people say a lot oh it should be 50 50 we ought to be it ought to be 50 50 it's never 50 50. it can be 60 40 or 30 70 but it's never 50-50. And to remember that, I think, is one of the most important lessons I've ever learned as far as marriage is concerned. Your kids, you five kids, uh -huh. all grown. All grown. What have they learned, or in terms of your journey and, and the valley and recovery and how has that affected them, impacted them in terms of their lives? I'm curious. I think that they're all, uh, I don't think, I know that they're all very aware of, of what I went through. Even though, as I expressed to you before, Dean, I was never a nasty drunk. I wasn't, I was a fun drunk. I had a lot of fun, but I did outrageous things. And I think they're kind of glad that their dad has kind of calmed down a little bit and isn't quite as outrageous as I used to be. But what they have found is that if I really believe that they think of me as stronger than for having overcome what it is, and they respect me for it. I want to talk about the key class. After your corporate career, very successful, you founded and are the president of the key class. Yes. Which is having an impact all over town here and other places. Um, so talked about, talk about how that vision came and what your goals are for it. What, what is your purpose with that? Well, the key class started actually 
partially because of what I did for a living with being in, in uh, the event industry. Um, I was a planner and I, I didn't just plan an event. I prepared my clients for where they were going, what they were going to be doing and so on and so forth and gave them all the protocol that you do in a, a different country and the way you handle things in different countries and so on. And I have always been a nerd of sorts about etiquette and protocol. I love it. And I've studied it and studied it in many, many different um, uh, countries. I, I, I just love customs and why, uh, why things are done. And so I was doing all of that. And um, when I retired, when I finally decided to retire after 44 years, I had been traveling, Dean, for two to three weeks a month. And I was finally, I'd had it. I just couldn't get on another airplane. And I, I didn't want to leave my wife either. I was, I wanted to be at home and the kids were all out of the house, but I still, I, I wanted to be home and with my wife and with, with our kids whenever the kids could come and so on and so forth. And anyway, I decided to retire. And I um, was, I've been a mentor. That was something that we haven't spoken about, yeah. but I've been a mentor for seven, a for seven boys. And uh, they, a lot of them started at seven years old. Two of them started at seven years old. The others were 15, 16 years old when I started mentoring them. So these are seven boys in addition to your five kids? In addition, yeah. And how did you find them? Well, through the Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse is where it started. Okay. And then since then, they have found me. <laughs> I don't know how, but <laughs> they have found me. These, yeah. these wonderful things that have come into my life, these wonderful boys have changed my life mm -hmm. completely. But being a mentor, I decided because a friend of mine said, why don't you become a CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate. Mm -hmm. And we work with foster children. And she persuaded me that it was like being a mentor on steroids mm -hmm. because I'd be able to make decisions for this kid and the kid would confide in me and I would be the kid's voice, mm -hmm. basically. And so it sounded right up my alley. And so I, I went to the classes and did all the classes for um, uh, be to be a CASA. Mm -hmm. Went and became a CASA and um, was paired up. It took a year to pair me up with a boy that actually grew up here in Santa Barbara, but in the foster care system, in a group home setting. And since he was a toddler, he, he was in the foster care system. And so I um, met with this boy. We, when you're a CASA, you have to meet with the person that you've been paired with for an hour each week for three weeks in the place that they live to make sure that both of you want to be paired with each other. And if you don't want to be paired for some reason, that's okay. Yes. Nobody, no hit, no run, no... No harm, no foul. Right, no harm, no foul. Thank you. Um, there was no problem. So uh, it turned out that on Will is his name, and I can use his name now because he's aged out of the system. He's 24 years old now. And uh, we're still very, very close. Uh, Will was going to become 15. And it was his birthday the following week when I was supposed to go for my third visit with him. And I asked permission from Will and from the staff that I take him out to dinner instead of 
meeting him. And he agreed that he thought that would be fun. He hadn't been out and he would like that. And I agreed to take him. So we went to dinner and here we are at dinner and he ordered a bowl of chili. And he sat down at the table and I sat across from him and he proceeded, Dean, 15 years old, grew up in Santa Barbara. He proceeded to eat from this bowl of chili with his hands. Wow. He scooped up a, a handful of chili and then took a napkin and wiped his hands and threw the napkin on the table. And I watched this and I knew that he was not doing this just because he was a teenager and he was trying to push my buttons. He was not. I knew that this was for real. Yeah. And so I watched it for a while and then I said to him, finally, I, I couldn't take it anymore. There was chili everywhere, all over him. There was a pile of dirty napkins. It was disgusting. And I said to him, Will, I think I could teach you something that would help you for the rest of your life. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, what I need you to do is go to the restroom and wash up and come back to the table and I'll start with the lesson. And he said, okay, that's, that sounds good. He left, I cleaned the table all up, got the, rid of the napkins and the bowl of chili and cleaned all the chili off the top of the table and got him another bowl of chili and a napkin and a spoon. And when he came back to the table, there it was all set. And I said, okay, well, here's what you've got to do. You want to put the napkin in your lap. And he said, well, why would you put a napkin in your lap when all you have to do is grab them right from here? And I said, well, Will, you don't want to get chili on your clothes. And that's part of the reason. And the other part of the reason is no one wants to see your dirty napkin. And so you keep it hidden on your lap. He said, oh, okay. And I said, now I'd like you to pick up your spoon. And so, of course, he picked up his spoon and held it like this. And I showed him how to hold the spoon and how to dip the spoon into the bowl and actually eat the chili from the bowl. He finished the entire bowl of chili with the spoon. And he thought that was pretty cool. He was pretty proud of himself. And I was very proud of him as well. And I thought, well, I don't know. This kid's either gonna love me or he's gonna hate me. Right. And I don't know what's gonna happen. And when we walked out of the restaurant, a little skinny, scrawny kid put his arm up around my shoulder and said, thank you very much. No one has ever taken the time to show me how to do that. Hmm. Dean, the lump in my throat was enormous. And as I drove home, I cried and thought, I live in a bubble an absolute bubble that I think that everybody knows these things without, you know, being prompted. They know how to eat. Right. So I had been retired for about three months and I said to my wife when I retired, I'm taking six months and I'm laying on the couch <laughs> and doing nothing. And she said, yeah, okay, honey whatever you say. And I didn't ever lay on the couch. And I th might have read one book, and that was about the extent of it. And I came home and I woke her up and I said, Marty, I've decided what I'm gonna do. I am going to write a curriculum that will teach soft skills and life skills to kids at risk. And that's where it all started. And you I, wrote a curriculum. I wrote a curriculum. It took me six months to write this curriculum. 
and wrote the curriculum and started teaching through the Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse with their teen court program. Started there, did that for a few months, and the high schools heard about me. And the high schools wanted me to come and start teaching in the high schools. So I now I'm teaching not only in the with the kids in recovery, but in the high schools. And pretty soon I'm teaching in all the high schools here in Santa Barbara. Wow. Next thing you know, I'm in Oxnard teaching in the high schools there, and not only in teaching in the high schools, but I was teaching in their college, Oxnard City College. And things went on and on, and it's grown into this big thing in the past nine years. It's been nine years. It's been nine years that I've done it, and I've reached about 8,500 kids. And it's pretty gratifying. You said something to me about your mom as she was passing away or before she passed away something she said to you about you have you've made it my son the millionaire yeah talk a little bit about kind of her the end of her life and kind of how kind of things came full, full circle well the end of her life um she uh at, at first when i got sober she was not real happy because really? she lost a drinking buddy oh. <laughs> But then after I'd been sober for about a year, she was very proud and very, very happy that I had done it and said, you know, this is a great thing. And she remembered all the troubles that we have gone through, had gone through as a family. And when, I'll never forget it, the nurses were in the room and all of us kids were there. And when she introduced each of us kids by age down, I'm, I'm the second one. And she said, and this is my son, the millionaire. He's made it. And it's not about the money that I say that. But what I say it for is because I'm proud that my mom became proud. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, that's a powerful thing. Yes, it is. So it's, there's so much, John. That, uh, there's so many rich parts to your story in terms of that, you know, from your mom being on the handlebars, figuring things out together, coming together as a family, recovery and overcoming, learning to like yourself. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting life you've lived. I've had a, an amazing life. I really have. And do you know something? When I look back at it, I wouldn't change anything. Really? I really wouldn't change anything because I think that all of it has been a tapestry that's been woven to be the life that I, and the, turned me to the person that I am today, which is now all about helping kids. That's what my whole life is about, is helping kids. Yeah, and that's how you want to spend the rest of your life. That's how life. I want to spend the rest of my life. All of it is done, by the way, through donations. Yes. There is no charge to any of these kids that are taking the classes there's no charge whatsoever and and so people who want to help yes they can give to the e class and they can sponsor some of these programs they can sponsor uh, a student absolutely and that's on the website as well are people nervous when they meet you they make eye contact they oh, shake yes. well <laughs> i feel a little nervous right now oh no Am I doing stop okay so far? stop i would hope not <laughs> no, people. People are are. Uh, it, it's it's wonderful. It is wonderful, and it's wonderful to be around town and running into students all the time. As a matter of fact, I left your office the other day, and went home, and we were out in the driveway talking, and all of a sudden there was a crash. And there was a girl that wiped out. She was driving too fast. And she wiped out two cars next door to me. She had a passenger with her. And they both came out. And, of course, we got them blankets. And we were taking care of them and got them out of the car and so on and so forth. And we're taking care of these kids and so on until the police came and the ambulance came and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, this one kid, 
on the sidewalk wrapped in one of my blankets says, aren't you John Daly? <laughs> I said, yeah, I am. And she said, I took your class. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so you never know where they're going to run it. Well, run into them. One of the things about this program and about my heart for this program is we're talking about good things. We're talking about the good things in life of which oh, yeah. we've talked a lot about today. But we also, it's not happy time. In other words, we're keeping it real. Uh-huh. And well, that's one of the things I really appreciate about you is you're authentic. We're keeping it real and you're willing to talk about the struggles and the valleys. And you just said you wouldn't even change it if you had the opportunity to because it's made you who you are. Yes. And I think, you know, hope, uh, one more Dallas Willard quote before we finish. Of course. You know, Dallas Willard talks about fear as being the anticipation of evil or or bad things. Mm -hmm. And hope is the joyous expectation of good things, of, of the good. Yes. That we can't see yet. And I think another message for that person who may be right now struggling, addicted, depressed, alone, isolated. I think it's wonderful for them to hear from you because there is hope. Absolutely. No matter how dark, no matter how tangled up you are or what a mess you've made out of your life, there's hope. And that's something I think, that's a message I think people need to hear. I don't know if you want to add anything to that before we wrap up. Well, I think definitely there there is hope. and But I, I think that it's... You have to, you have to be willing. Yeah. You have to be willing. Take and the first step. You have to take the first step. Right. right. And that's the thing, you know, don't worry about step two, three, four. Take, take one step. step. Go exactly. to a meeting, talk to a friend, reach out. Right. You know, we've had, we have this opioid crisis now. We have suicide epidemic. We have epidemic. Epidemic. And you know, everybody thinks because they have 714 Facebook friends, they have friends. But the truth is that they might have 714 Facebook friends, but not one friend. Exactly. And we need friends. Exactly. We need friends. You know, we need to reach out. And that takes communication. And it takes communication. And that's one of the things that Key Class teaches. About communication. About communication. How to communicate with people rather than being on your texting and everything. This is a little bit old-fashioned what we're doing right now. We're talking to one another. Yeah, it is (laughs) old-fashioned. It's not a bad idea. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Well, we're going to be friends, I I think, for a long time. I believe so. And I hope people that are watching this get this message because this is a great story. This is the good stuff. And I really appreciate you coming on, John. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll have you on again, I hope. I hope so. Uh, So thank you, John. I want to thank our entire team, Donna, Donnie, Oscar, JP, Erica, the whole uh, team we have here. I'm really glad you joined us. I hope you're inspired. God is good. You're good. And this is a good life. And I'll see you down the road a little bit.